This digitally remastered episode is sponsored by our publisher, Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. To get a signed copy of our book, Transmigrations, go to sageandsavant.com or pick up your copy from edgewebsite.com or Amazon today. And now for our show. and welcome to the audio etheric transmission The Tales of Sage and Savant, a Twin Star production. This broadcast is brought to you on the first of each month from the Twin Star Studios in sunny Southern California. Episode 4, Georgie Porgy Puddin' and Pie, was written by Eddie Louise. Our tale stars Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. Special guests in this episode were Avery Fulton as Porgy and Corin James as Ethan. This month's program features the music of the Steampunk Stompers. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. When last we saw the intrepid Sage and Savant, they were separated by time, space, and 38 caliber bullets. You will be relieved to hear that the separation was only temporary. Savant awakened with a blinding headache and a very aroused sense of honor. Calm down, old man. Check her pulse. She should be fine. She should be here any moment. Pulse is fine. Temperature seems all right. She's fine. She will come back to you. Sage returned to her body nearly an hour later, obviously rattled by the events of the previous 24 hours. Petra! <sighs> that was not good. I'm glad to see that you are home and in good health, Erasmus. Now get out. Sage banished the professor from her laboratory and isolated herself within, neither emerging nor responding to his repeated entreaties for 12 days. Petra! Petra! When she finally unlocks the door... Petra, I've had enough. I'm coming in no matter what. Hello, Erasmus. The laboratory looks as if a bomb has detonated at its center. The doctor is a mess. Her cheeks are sallow. Her copper curls stand on end. There are dark smudges under her eyes. Her unwashed clothing hangs loosely from her frame. Petra, are, are you all right, Hen? Quite. I'm fine. Why wouldn't I be all right? Because we died. We traveled to the future. We got shot in the head. At times, I had no way of knowing if you would come back. And after the agonizing wait for you, when you finally do show up, you locked me out of your lab and have kept me out for the past two weeks. Don't I be ridiculous, Erasmus. I was running calculations and revising my theories in light of the new information. I simply could not risk the distraction your presence creates while I work. I am a distraction? You see, I have suspected for some time that we haven't traveled any place at all. But rather, the electrical overload established a magnetic resonance between our brains, allowing for our intellects to construct and share delusions of ever increasing increasing intensity, bridging from elements of the known and researched history to imagined and speculated future. Wait, 
What do you mean, we haven't traveled? Galvanists have long theorized that it might be possible to link two brains through the expediency of electric transfer. And I now suspect that this might be what has happened to us. It is a far more reasonable hypothesis than that we traveled through time and space into an unknowable future. That does not sound at all reasonable, Petra. I refuse to believe that our travels were merely flights of fancy. I, for one, would have never imagined the miracle that is an automatic seam-sewer. And for another thing, my imagination would certainly not have included all the dying. My calculations support my theory. It is all here in my notes. Laboratory of Dr. Petronella Sage. King's College, 22nd July, 1893, 2.30 p.m. In order to prove my theory of magnetic linkage between the brains of Professor Savant and myself, I have created a cranial reticulation analog plexus helmet, which will record the individual electrical impulses from our craniums as we recreate the last experiment that supposedly threw us into the future. I shall now fit the professor and myself with the cranium devices. Taking no more time for his questions, the doctor chivvies the professor into his Faraday armor and then up onto the table. She affixes the CRAP helmet over his head and tightens many screws, securing sensors at multiple places across his skull, which is now crisscrossed with a veritable web of copper wiring. At last, she pokes a needle into the large vein on the back of his hand. Ouch! What is that for? Well, there is the slight chance that we do actually travel to another place and time. This intravenous line will carry enough sugar and water to our blood to keep our bodies nourished for three days, in case we are detained. Detained? And then, like always, the doctor repeats the procedure on herself until she too looks like a being from another planet. Update. 2.23 p.m. The CRAP helmets are recording the electrical waves from our brains as intended. Currently, the electrical activity of the professor and myself is remarkably different. I hypothesize that the waveforms will begin to match up once we are under the joint hallucination. Conversely, if our waveforms do not line up, it will be proof that the travels are real and not delusional. And we are off! This has become almost routine, dear listeners, though the doctor is nearly convinced that all of this electricity is simply a conduit into a shared delusion. Still scientifically significant, but not nearly so thrilling as time travel. Besides an experiment that creates this much sound and fury should signify something. Time travel real or simply a shared delusion? We'll find out after this short musical break. Now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the musical outpourings of the Steampunk Stompers, giving us a rousing rendition, arranged by Mark Petty, of Live Wires, a slow drag rag about the marvels of that newfangled invention, electricity.
And now, back to our story. The two scientists have again made the leap into the unknown. When they open their eyes, they are greeted by a fresh-faced youth of some seven or eight years, holding a distinctly unchildlike knife. Who are you? What are you doing here? Whilst our heroes struggle to make sense of their situation, I should tell you, they have entered the bodies of children. Well, to be wholly honest, Savant's host, though titularly a 12-year-old, is nearly the size of a yearling bull. Sage's host, on the other hand, is a rather smallish girl of 11. You tell me who you are or I'll stick you! Uh, yes, uh, well, um, we must be friends. Or cousins. Or cousins of friends. Fess up now, and no funny business. If you are a demon, I'll send you back to hell. Oh, here now, whatever makes you think we are demons? Because last night my friends Puddin and Georgie died, and then this morning you sat up in their bodies, pretty as you please. I may be a kid, but I know enough to know that dead folks don't up and sit the next morning. Ah, yes. I can see now how that might be distressing. I don't suppose that I can convince you that I am the real Puddin' now. The boy launches himself at the doctor's skinny female form, ready to plunge the knife into the heart of the one he perceives to be a demon. Oi, there is no call for that. Luckily, the professor moves pretty quickly in his body, and his ham-like arms snatch the boy out of midair. Let me go! Let me go! I won't have demons defiling the body of my best friend! Let me go! She is not a demon, child. Whatever would make you think such a thing? She is your own sweet puddin'. That's not puddin'. You're puddin'. And the fact that you didn't know that means you are a demon too. Twisting in the professor's grasp, the child stabs his knife into the fleshy shoulder of the boy mountain Professor Savant is inhabiting. Yow! This has the predictable effect of causing the professor to drop the miscreant who scrambles back out of the reach of stomping boots and flailing fists the professor has unleashed. Wait, wait. Let's not kill each other. There is a perfectly rational explanation for what is happening. Please, Professor, sit down. Are you badly hurt? The little savage stabbed me. So no, then. I'm sorry, little boy. I don't know your name. My name is Ethan, and I am not little. I'm almost the same size as you and nearly as good a fingersmith. Or at least I am as good as Georgina was. But you are not her, so that means I am better than you. And the realization dawns. He is Puddin, and I am Georgie, or rather, not Georgie. You are quite correct, young man. I'm not the same Georgie that died last night. Will you come and sit and let me explain? I'm fine right here. All right. But before I begin, can you tell me the date? July 24th. Why? And the year? 1899. Duh. Are we by any chance in Manhattan? New York as I live and breathe. And so, taking a chance as she has never done before, the doctor tells the child the truth. That they are scientists from the year 1893, and that they are conducting experiments in temporal translocation that seem to only work when there are dead bodies available to transmigrate into. Either that, or this is all a delusion. I'm sorry we came into these bodies so suddenly and that it scared you. I wasn't scared. What good does it do to only travel seven years, though? If I could trans... trans... trans thingamajiggy, I would go someplace a lot more interesting. 
Like the moon in the future, the way Mr. Jules Verne talks about. Or back to see the dinosaurs for myself. Yes. Well, I assume this body I'm inhabiting is Georgina. Can you tell me about her? Georgie, nobody ever calls you Georgina. You are the sister to our gang leader, the Hell's Kitchen Hounds. You are the best fingersmith in New York. Well, that is nice. What exactly is a fingersmith? A dipper? A cut purse? A wallet lifter? A pickpocket. <laughs> you are a common sneak thief. And you are heavy along with your twin brother, Pi. Before Ethan can finish his explanation, two other boys burst into the room. The first is a wiry 14-year-old with jet black hair and a menacing air. The other is a carbon copy of Puddin. Oi, you're up. We thought we'd lose you for sure last night. If you're solid, we could really use you on the streets. Brother! Seriously, sis, you all right? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. She's fine. Still a bit groggy is all. All right. Pie, get off your brother. Puddin', I need you for a job tonight. You up for it? Oh, I, I'm up. Yes, yes, of course. I, I, I can be up for you. Oh, yes, I'll be up. Right then. Ethan and Georgie, get out and earn us some dosh. The gang's been hungry for a week now. Puddin', Pie, you're with me. Georgie, can Puddin' come with us today? Georgie is still a bit shaky. I'm just thinking that Puddin' can carry the loot and get it to the fence so Georgie will have less walking to do. Keep her energy like, in case she has to run. We wouldn't want her to get pinched. Good thinking, little stuff. Pie, you have a problem with that? Nia, I'm with two of my little brother anyway. Ha, all right, troops. Meet here tonight at supper time. Ethan and Georgie are buying supper. Ethan helps our scientists find clothes that are not crusted in the effluvia of cholera, and they do their best to get cleaned up before venturing out into the street. As they walk from the tenement in Hell's Kitchen to the better crowd at Grand Central Station, Ethan explains the art of fingersmithing to our doctor. You gotta have a light touch. Fingers like feathers, my mom always said. And touch like the air. Like feathers. And you have to do the distraction touch like you mean it. Make sure their attention is on your cack hand whilst the feather fingers do the work. Petronella, I'm not sure you should be learning how to become a thief. What choice do I have? You heard the kid. No one has eaten all week because I've been sick. Look, you don't have to do anything. You could scarper and no one would be any the wiser. We will not scarper. The professor and I are many things, but disloyal to friends is not one of those things. I will just try to keep in mind that it is Georgie who is the thief, not I. Fingersmith. Georgie was the best fingersmith in New York, and that is saying something. I will try to do honor to her memory. As our crew arrives at Grand Central Station, they survey the crowd looking for good marks. Ethan catches one first and slips through the throng like a hot knife through butter, returning with a gold watch, a man's purse, and even a Morgan silver dollar. See? Nothing to it. Now you give it a try. Nothing to it. <laughs> right. Here, practice on me first. The boy secures the items he has just stolen on his person in roughly the positions they might appear on a grown man. He turns his back and pretends to be a busy gentleman, passing through the train station. Our doctor hurries after him, shadowing his movements until she sees her opportunity as Ethan gets slowed by a knot of travelers at the exit to 42nd Street. 
she glides up behind him, pretends to trip, and shoves into him from behind, clutching at his waist in mock distress. By the time Ethan has helped her to her feet, she has slipped the watch and the purse into pockets on her dress, and she palms the silver dollar as she shakes his hand and thanks for the kindness. I can only speculate where this amazing skill for theft has come from, but it seems the doctor is a natural. Did you see that, Erasmus? Did you see? I removed these things, slick as a whistle. I'm not sure if I should be impressed or frightened. I knew you had the stuff, just like Georgie. Now get out there and earn us some dosh. What if I'm not ready? I mean, I'm not ready. I only practiced once, and I knew it wasn't for real. I mean, those items I took from you were already stolen, so maybe that wasn't the same as actually stealing. But Ethan isn't listening. He has already disappeared into the crowd. Dr. Sage swallows her fears and wades bravely into the stream. She spies a finely dressed man with a silver-headed cane and a golden pocket watch chain ostentatiously spread across his stomach. She approaches. She uses her left hand to clap the man clumsily on the shoulder and then attempts to lift free the watch from his vest pocket. Unfortunately, the watch was on an Albert chain and does not come free. Unhand my watch, you gutter snipe! Not knowing what to do, Sage breaks the chain jerking the watch free and clutching it in her small fist as she turns to run with her stolen goods clasped to her chest. Georgie! Over here! Come on! Put in! Run! Sage runs for the boys who have panicked looks on their faces. As she approaches, Ethan turns putting north and shoves. Then he grabs Georgie's hand and pulls her along. They weave through the outskirts of the crowd, they run for nearly a mile and then plunge into leafy foliage at the end of a great park. They continue running until they are sure they have lost all pursuit. Only then do they collapse in a heap in the underbrush of a thicket that would be at home in the English countryside. There has got to be an easier form of making a living than that. This body is built more for pummeling foes, not pounding pavement. After the scare of the morning, the doctor and professor decide they must find safer and less imperiled ways to gain money for food. They make inquiries in nearby establishments until the doctor finds a shop owner in need of an electrical repair. Though the man is skeptical, Sage fixes his problems after a few short minutes crawling through conduits. The small size of her current body makes accessing the convoluted wiring a piece of cake, which is exactly how the grateful shop owner pays her, with a large piece of Battenberg and a shiny silver dollar. Sage decides to use the opportunity to instruct her young friend. Do you see, Ethan? There are far better ways of making a living than by stealing. The owner of the first shop referred them to a second establishment who did the same, and so on throughout the afternoon until they were all stuffed with cakes and sweets and their pockets were bursting with dollars. They returned to the gang headquarters like conquering heroes. They did not, however, explain where exactly the money came from. Ethan advised that Porgy would not take kindly to the new personage inhabiting the body of his sister. The Hell's Kitchen Hounds held a feast that evening to celebrate their success. Gents, gents, listen up. This here has been a right good feast thanks to our Georgie, who is newly returned to health. I was skeptical when she asked her puddin' to accompany them on the five-finger discount today, but Ethan told me they would need him to carry all the loot, and who boy were they right? 
All right, all right, settle down. So here's the deal. The Five Points gang has been nose around our track, and we gotta show them that they ain't welcome Hell's Kitchen way. Yeah, yeah, settle down. Tomorrow morning, me and Puddin' and Pie are gonna have ourselves a little meeting with the Five Points boys and set them straight. Hell's Kitchen belongs to the hounds. Okay, so Ethan and Georgie, tomorrow I want you back out on the streets. Let's concentrate on Longacre Square so the bulls in Grand Central don't get wise to your actions. There is no way you could pull that much dosh two days in a row and not get pinched. Now all you chums better get off to bed and get your beauty rest. Tomorrow's a big day. And so our heroes lay down to sleep in a den of thieves. Before long, the air is filled with the snores and murmurings of sleep. All except for those of Sage and Savant, who cling to each other in the darkness and review the happenings of their day. Doctor, why do you think you were so good at fingersmithing in practice, but so patently bad at it in the pinch? I'm not sure. I got nervous, I guess? I've been thinking about this. Do you remember Auerstadt? How could I forget? Yes, at Auerstadt, I could hear the French speaking. I knew it was French, but even though I have a rare facility for that language, I could not make out the words. I could only speculate that the Prussian soldier whose body I was borrowing did not know French, or that that part of his brain that had learned French was removed by the cannonball. Interesting. We know that the body has some sort of memory separate from that of the consciousness, because repeating a physical action in practice, such as that undertaken by musicians or athletes, has a marked effect on one's ability. So your body knows how to pick a pocket undetected, but once you got nervous, your brain overrode that ability. Hmm. It seems so, but that opens an entire other line of inquiry. How was it possible for Georgie to accomplish the electrical work that we did in the afternoon? Well, she had you, working from within to teach her hands what they needed to accomplish, well, just as she had you sabotaging the quick, smooth movements necessary for thievery with your doubts and moralization. So, if I occupied a pianist, sat in front of the instrument and closed my eyes, letting the body control the movements, I might actually be able to play a sonata? Well, I suspect so. Hmm. With her brain churning the ideas of physical versus mental knowledge, the doctor drifted off to sleep. In the morning, as good as his word, Porgy gathers Pie and Savant and heads into Five Points territory. The Five Points gang is one of the most vicious gangs in Manhattan, and unlike the Hounds, most of the members are adults. The youth are fringe members of the gang, hanging around the edges, looking for a way to prove themselves to their elders. It was just such a group of youths that were trying to move into Hounds territory. If Porgy's fine oration skills could not talk them out of their gambit, Puddin' and Pie would discourage them emphatically. Excuse me, um, Pie, what exactly are we going to do today? What we always do, dummy. Oh, will you go first, or will I? Whoever's fists are closer to the mark will go first, as always. What are you talking about, Puddin'? You're not going soft on me now, are you? Well, no, not soft. I was just (laughs) wondering, though, if perhaps... Well, I mean to say if we could... Well, consider, perhaps the role of pacifist is better suited to my temperament. (laughs) Oh, oh, I think that is the funniest thing I've heard all year. You a pacifist? You never met a mug you didn't want to smash a fist into. Don't mind me. I was just thinking. 
Obviously, it was stupid. It is apparent that appealing to the boy's better nature won't get the professor out of the coming battle. He is going to have to find a way to quell his inner qualms and channel the host body's penchant for violence. They arrive at the rendezvous, but the Five Points gang members that meet them are not the youth members, but one boy backed up by four large and menacing adults. Hey, Johnny Smalls, what you playing at? This here was to be a meeting of equals, not a hit squad. Like you? Bringing those two goons leads to a balanced equation. I just figured they might like to pick on somebody their own size. Hey, Porgy, uh, I don't like the look of these odds. Maybe we should back off on account of the opposition not following Queensberry rules. You cannot be suggesting that the hounds back down from a fight, Puddin'. Well, no, it's just... You let me do my part, and then we'll see if your part is needed, eh? Now stand back there next to your brother and keep your big trap shut. Your muscles looking a little green around the gills, Porgy. You sure that puddin' ain't spoiled? Never you mind him. Puddin' and pie are desperate to taste your blood. But I'll not let them until the conditions have all been met. The Hell's Kitchen Hounds always keep to the terms of their agreements. Oh, yeah? Well, the five points ain't gentlemen, that's true. But we don't have any girls in our gang, so nothing's made us soft. As if operating on a hidden signal, the five points bruisers surge forward and attack Porgy, Puddin' and Pie. Come on, Puddin', let's get them! But no one has done anything but talk. Surely we might be able to work it out if we could just all sit down and... Puddin's hesitation is all the opening the five points gang needs. One of the men grabs Porgy's arms from behind, pinning him and forcing him to watch as the other three move in on Pi. Erasmus stands rooted to the spot, struck dumb by the violence and unsure of what to do with the ham-sized fists that hang dumbly at his sides. Get in there, Puddin! Don't let Pi take on these guys! Whatever Porgy was about to say is muted by the expediency of a very dirty rag stuffed deep into his mouth. For a few minutes, Pi holds his own, knocking out one of the five pointers with a haymaker that would have taken a kid off his feet. The other two men are relentless, closing in on Pi with deadly intent. They pound their fists into his ribs, back and jaw. Puddin and Pi are huge for 12-year-olds, but they are no match for a pair of adult heavies. Pi goes down on one knee, bleeding from his nose and an ear, one eye already swelling shut. Porgy is going berserk in the arms of his captor, screaming through the gag, nearly choking in his anger. Johnny Smalls cackles off to the side like a demented boggle, thrilled that his ambush is going so well. Throughout this all, the professor stands paralyzed with indecision until finally the dam inside him breaks and his sense of injustice wins out over his pacifism. Puddin comes into the fray with a vengeance, a vicious uppercut catching one thug under the jaw and lifting him clear off his feet to land in an unconscious heap. A roundhouse kick throws the second man back from his brother. Not stopping to watch Pi crumble to the ground, the professor lowers his head and bull charges the man before he can catch his balance. He drives the man back into the brick wall with a force large enough to crack bones, though the professor does not stop to see which ones. He rounds on the goon holding Porgy, but the gang leader has already taken care of that guy with a well-placed kick to a knee that leaves the man groaning on the alley floor. Johnny Smalls makes like to run, but Savant catches him by the hair and holds the greasy little thug in place, waiting for Porgy's pleasure. I got this, weasel. Puddin, see to your brother. Our professor gladly untangles his fingers from the unwashed five points follicles and heads over to check on his unconscious counterpart. What is gonna get out about this, Johnny Smalls? You mark me. 
We might have fought today fair and square, but you had to go and try to stack the deck. This city will remember that, and you won't be able to hold your head high any place in the boroughs. I advise you find a new domicile someplace out west, way out west. Now get out of here before I let Puddin give you the licking you deserve. It is a subdued group that returned to Hound's headquarters, and their spirits can't be raised even by the luxurious feast procured by Ethan and Georgie. That night, Sage and Savant talk about the moral implications of imposing their own worldviews on lives that are not their own. Because of my hesitation, Pi nearly got beat to death. You were not wrong to try for a peaceful solution. But I didn't understand the stakes. My pacifism was out of place. Are you suggesting that in order to continue traveling, we'll have to leave our morals behind? I, I don't know what I'm suggesting. I certainly hope our death looms sooner rather than later to spare me from making that judgment call again. The pair fell into an uneasy sleep, dreaming of death and theft and beatings. In the morning, they were awakened by a very excited Porgy. Gents, Kid Blink is going to speak at a rally. Let's go have a keek. The guy's a total corker. Kid Blink is one of the leaders of the newsboy strike that is currently shaking up New York. Tired of price gouging by William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, the boys are refusing to sell papers. The hounds follow their leader into the streets to join the swelling ranks at the street rally. We know what we wants, and we'll get it, even if we is blind. Them ten cents is as good to us as to the millionaires, maybe better. I shouldn't be surprised, but that it's as good as a quarter is to them. Anyway, we wants it. And we'll strike and re-strike until we get it, won't we, boys? Those boys are right fired up, aren't they, Georgie? What a sight. We're going to march with them, ain't we? We can march with them on one condition, Ethan, that you promise me you will work to make something better of yourself than a fingersmith. Now, for the last two days, I've been showing you how to do the electrical work, yes? Yes, and I've been learning about the ground and ampers just as you've been telling me. I think you can already tell that the electricity work will be a better income than fingersmithing, yes? But you have got to be clean and polite to get hired. No one will want to hire a little hooligan to do the work, and I'm afraid there will not be enough of you to press the issue as the newsies are doing. Do you understand? Yes, but why are you talking this way, Georgie? We're going to do that work together, aren't we? Ethan, you do remember that I'm not really Georgie, don't you? And I've already stayed here longer than I've stayed anywhere and I've traveled. I'm not sure how much longer I'll get to stay. Petra, the newsies are on the march. We should go along. Oh, this is so exciting. Children, striking. Certainly children have been involved in labor movements before, but... Never have they raised a strike on their own behalf. This is our chance to see history in the making. Right. Ethan, I want you to take this. It is $10. I held it back from the portions we've used to buy the gang food. You use that and do as I've taught you. Get free of the gangs. There's a better future for you if you have the courage to take it like these young newsies. Okay, but Georgie... Petra... You're not gonna leave me alone again, are ya? Yous all know me, boys, don't ya? We'll stick together like plaster, won't we, boys? Before Dr. Sage can answer Ethan's question, they are swept up in the flurry surrounding the Newsies' march. Let's leave them to their dreams of a better future as we pause for a word from our sponsor.
Hello, listeners. Eddie Louise here, head writer for the Tales of Sage and Savant. I like stories that ignite my imagination, that make me think about the world in new ways, and that inspire me to build a future world. This is the kind of fiction I strive to write, and this is the kind of fiction published by our sponsor, Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. Featuring works by established authors and emerging new voices, Edge is pleased to provide quality literary entertainment, including book one of the Tales of Sage and Savant, Transmigrations, in both print and pixels. Look for books with the Edge logo at your local bookstore and online for Kindle, Kobo, Nook, iTunes, and Google Play. Find your next great read at www.edgewebsite.com. Yes, dear friends, when you want to curl up with a great story, trust books from Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. And now, back to our story. When we left our heroes, they were joining the Newsies' march on Wall Street. The mood in the city is tense, though there is great support for the boys in the streets. The support in the boardrooms and halls of power is less enthusiastic. Where's Ethan? I I cannot see him. I lost him somewhere around Union Square. This is getting ugly. We need to get out of this crowd, and we'll have to trust Ethan to do the same. The doctor and the professor attempt to extract themselves from the crowd, but it is too late. They are sucked into a maelstrom of rioting youths and strike-busting cops. The doctor's slight body is no match for the weight of the crowd around her, and she is knocked to the street, the immediate victim of trampling feet. The professor throws himself to the ground near her, attempting to shield her body with his own larger one, but he is kicked in the head and blacks out. All goes dark, and under the stamping feet of the insensate crowd, our heroes take their last breaths in these bodies. The pair awaken on the familiar slabs, the CRAP helmet recorder needle sticking on the end of the roll of paper that ran out on the first four hours of the journey. Dr. Sage slowly unbuckles, freeing herself to check the results of their experiment. So, it was all a shared delusion? No, apparently not. The electrical signatures of our brains remain distinctly separate. So all that will happen. The gang, the striking boys. Apparently... And so we are done traveling. What? Oh, no. Not at all. Well, now we must travel longer and further. We must attempt to push backwards in time, not by decades, but by centuries. And when we have learned how to do that with a plume, then we must once again venture into the future. But we died? If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, Erasmus. Death is no barrier to science. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a twin star production brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Special guests in this episode were Avery Fulton as Porgy and Corin James as Ethan. Episode 4, Georgie Porgy Puddin' and Pie, was written by Eddie Louise. Audio engineering and theme music by Chip Michael. Special music in this episode was Live Wires, written by Adeline Shepard in 1910, arranged by Mark Petty for the album Full Steam by the Steampunk Stompers. Check them out at steampunkstompers.com. 
We would like to thank our friends Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing for sponsoring this digitally remastered episode. Catch our website at sageandsavant.com and like us on Facebook to stay current with all things Sage and Savant. And remember, death is no barrier to science. <laughs>